special guest today, Stephen R. Haynes, holds a PhD in religion and literature from Emory University, the MDiv from Columbia Theological Seminary, and an MA from Florida State University, and a BA from Vanderbilt University. Professor Haynes has been at Rhodes College since 1989 and offers courses on the Holocaust, religion and racism, and religion and literature. In addition to these subjects, he has research interests in Jewish-Christian relations, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and religion and higher education. So let's see, my impulse is to call you Professor. You can call me Steve, right. how about that? All right, <laughs> and you're already calling me Rob, so. Yeah. We'll be Steve and Rob, but uh, very nice to have you in Thank this you. conversation surrounding. We're going to go right to the subject at hand, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah. So uh, you've made a point in some of your work that Bonhoeffer can, in fact, be implicated in just about any conversation about almost anything, and you see that as to a fault. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? How maybe Bonhoeffer has been exploited, co-opted, borrowed, maybe invoked yeah. when he's not of help? Yeah, I've been interested for a long time in, in Bonhoeffer's reception, uh, really more than Bonhoeffer's theology, which a lot of people have written a great deal about. But for me, what's so interesting and distinctive about Bonhoeffer is the way people from across the theological spectrum and even beyond the theological spectrum, will invoke his memory, invoke his, um, uh, his heroism, uh, will cite his theology uh, in support of, of whatever arguments they're, they're faced with. And it's been pointed out uh, for many years that it's not unusual to find Bonhoeffer, if you, if you study a particular issue, if you go deep enough to find Bonhoeffer sort of invoked, called up on either side or uh, both sides, essentially. Um, so this, this raises the question of, you know, who was Bonhoeffer really and, and what are the limits of, you know, using Bonhoeffer to, to illumine our contemporary problems. Um, certainly there are limits. Um, I think he, he does uh, present himself to a lot of different, you know, he he's makes himself available to a lot of different uh, sort of political and theological positions just by the nature of, of his theology and the breadth of his thinking. Um, and uh, his life is so interesting along with his theology. It's, it's impossible to separate who he, you know, what he did and who he was from what he wrote. And I think that's the thing ultimately that makes Bonhoeffer of interest to just about everybody who knows anything about him. And I've talked about that in previous conversations. It's just, you know, people will sit up and give their attention at Bonhoeffer's name on extreme ends of the spectrum, right and left, liberal and conservative, everything in between, and even non-religious, yeah. uh, apolitical people are still very interested in him. You've treated him, uh, you've treated this question yeah. in, in a, a, a recent book that's yet to be published yeah. at, at this recording isn't out yet. Can you talk a little bit about that new title of yours? Yeah, so the, the book is coming out in September. It's, it's being published by Erdman's Press, and the title is The Battle for Bonhoeffer. Uh, the subtitle is Debating Discipleship in the Age of Trump. Um, it's not all about- Is the it on pre-sale? Uh, 
I don't I'm, know. I'm grab I, I'll, I'll I'm have to. Grab uh, we'll have to talk to Erdman's about that. But it's not all about the 2016 election. It sort of ends there. And what I found was looking back uh, toward 9/11, really since the Iraq War, since the, the run-up to the Iraq War, war in 2002-2003, Bonhoeffer has been uh, invoked, cited, you know, um, seized upon by people on both sides of the political spectrum. And I think it's really because I think the key is he has there's this integrity between life and thought that's appealing to everyone. Mm. Wherever you are on the political or theological spectrum, there's there's as you said that people sit up and listen when Bonhoeffer's mentioned. Um, but it was just fascinating to see how under Bush, under Obama, under Trump, um, in between uh, in Supreme Court decisions, I uh, talk a lot about the Bonhoeffer moment of 2015 in the run-up to the Obergefell uh, decision about same-sex marriage, when people are uh, looking for a, a clear way forward, when they feel like it's a time of, of stress or crisis, Bonhoeffer is somebody people go back to and, and look at. And, and this idea of a Bonhoeffer moment in 2015 is fascinating to me because nobody def described what it really was. So you have in 2015 evangelicals claiming that the country was on the verge of an evangelical moment of a Bonhoeffer moment, but not saying what it was, assuming that mm. people in their their audience knew, right? So that that an evangelical audience would have a sort of uh, knowledge appreciation for a you know 20th century continental theologian is pretty yes, remarkable. Right, right. Of course, many American evangelicals would know Bonhoeffer either from what used to be titled The Cost of Discipleship, right. now retitled as it was originally, just with a single word, discipleship. Right. Uh, but actually, in you know, if you really did an accounting of that, probably a very, very tiny, almost minuscule uh, percentage of people will have actually read Bonhoeffer. They, they've heard about him. They know that he, in their minds, a courageous martyr. Uh, but uh, Focus on the Family did a radio theater on Bonhoeffer, which I hear a lot of evangelicals refer to, which is a very dramatic, I would dare say romantic telling mm -hmm. of his human drama. And that's really all that's known. But right. when, and I do think, and I say this uh, actually uh, with a commendation implied, uh, a lot of pastors want very, much to know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Sure. But they really don't know him theologically. That's why I love the little booklet you did, uh, Bonhoeffer for Armchair Theologians, and I can't tell you how many times I've recommended it to yeah. pastors. And I'm going to do it again right now because I know a lot of pastors and, and other church leaders, denominational officials, and so on listen uh, to this podcast, and we hope more and more will. And so I'm going to recommend it again. Uh, well, let me say something nice about crazy. that since, since you mentioned it. So the book has two parts. The first part is his biography. Uh, the second part is his th theology. And uh, Lori Brant Hale was responsible mainly for the second part. So w we did separate his life and thought. We thought that was probably the best way to proceed. But we, we wanted to make clear in the second part that his, his theology is very... Um, is, is very carefully wrought. It's very, uh, very much in conversation with other voices in the 20th century uh, continental theology and philosophy. Uh, it's not easy. It's, some of his work is really tough sledding, but it's really valuable. I mean, it really pays off if you're willing to spend the time. So we wanted to make sure people 
uh, you know, have the whole package. I'm really glad you did it that way for so many reasons. One is, uh, I mean, even though you bifurcated it, the two of you in, in your treatment of those two different aspects of Bonhoeffer, you really can't separate them. No. I mean, his life is his theology, his theology is his life. I think that's probably one of the things that makes him so compelling Yeah, is that he's not a theoretician. He lived it. He lived he tested it. it. And you can look at some of the things he wrote, 1933, 34, 35, and you can, uh, looking backward, you can discern there the path that he was going to, to trot. It's very, it's very remarkable that he had the sort of foresight in this very difficult time in German history to sort of see what the options were going forward and what he was probably going to be called to do. Well, after everybody's done reading Bonhoeffer for Armchair Theologians, the first introductory, the Precy, the 101, mm -hmm. I call it. Uh, what would you recommend next? Let's say for a pastor who says, you know, I, I really should know more of Bonhoeffer. I'd like to yeah. know. I'd like to rely on him for some of my sermon content. You know, how look at how he would have treated yeah. some of the big questions we're facing today uh, in terms of local church ministry even. And I have to remind people of that, that Bonhoeffer maintained a pastoral theology yeah. all through his life, right to the very end. Yeah. I mean, if 10 years after his famous letter to his seminarians, his charges, mm -hmm. and then he was helping train and form for ministry, isn't a pastoral letter. Right. I don't know what is. Yeah. Uh, but what would you recommend to a, a pastor who says, no, nah, I, I really need to know more of, yeah. of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Where would you send I would send them to the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Works uh, in English um, series, which was just completed a couple of years ago, and it's 16 volumes that I'm not recommending everybody buy all 16, but Bonhoeffer's major works are, um, are present there, and what's added are footnotes, for instance, in Discipleship, which I think we both read probably in the 70s and, and college exactly. and were touched by. Um, all I had was the Macmillan version of just the, the mm -hmm. text, and it was uh, obviously tough to, to understand the context he was writing from. But um, the DBWE uh, has um, all these footnotes and essays and uh, help with really seeing what was going on, what was at stake at these various times. Um, and then some and, and I think uh, Fortress Press that did that uh, came out with like a reader's that's edition right. of some of it. So There's it also a, easier a than... paperback, uh, I think it's called the Bonhoeffer Reader, which has excerpts from each of those. Maybe that's even a better place yeah, to start. Yeah, be a starting. Yeah. Uh, and then there are many uh, interpreters of Bonhoeffer, very helpful. Vicki Barnett is one that, that comes to mind. Her stuff is, I think, very accessible and very sort of um, clear-eyed. Um, and then there are Bonhoeffer, there are Bonhoeffer Don't biographies. Don't be too modest. You, you have some titles yourself. That, well, uh, if, if somebody's, I'll say this, if you're interested in the reception of Bonhoeffer, which is what really fascinates me, how he's been used and interpreted, the, the book I did in 2004 called The Bonhoeffer Phenomenon. From yes, Fortress which Press, I've read and, and was a wonderful is, help. Is a good primer. I mean, it really, it, it sort of presents the waterfront of Bonhoeffer interpretation. Sure does, um, sure does. And there are several, uh, Biographies, a couple recently. Charles Marsh wrote one, I think, in 2011. I've talked about it on this very podcast. Yeah. In fact, if you want, uh, your listener to the podcast, you can go back to 
the Bonhoeffer biographies, which is an episode we yeah. did. And I talked, of course, about Marsha's, yeah. I think, probably the most recent, isn't his the most recent? If not, uh, Friedrich uh, Singensiepen, uh, yes. um, the German, it's been translated in English. And of course, Eric Metaxas' biography, which has gotten a lot of attention as well. Right, right. And uh, I've talked about some of the different angles that those various biographies uh, present. But since you mentioned context, mm -hmm. Uh, you have certainly treated Bonhoeffer's context in, in, in terms of time and place and uh, world events. And of course, you, 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 I, I, you know, how dare I say this to a scholar? You're a scholar. I'm an amateur when it comes uh, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But, uh, you know, I've said it, it's really impossible to fully appreciate him without knowing something of his context yeah. and about that context being the German church crisis. Right playing in the background, or not so much in the background, actually, for him in, in the foreground. Can you talk a little bit about that, the context of, of time and place yeah. and church for Bonhoeffer? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, we want to sort of um, abstract Bonhoeffer away from his, his own time and place. And of course, uh, Bonhoeffer was a churchman uh, in the early 30s who was trying to be a leader. He was younger than most of the church leaders, and so it was difficult for him to really get a hearing. Many people saw him as sort of a younger guy who didn't understand how institutions worked and how you got, you know, you used compromise to get where you uh, where you wanted to go. Yeah, politics, yeah. He, he was a, he was very much uh, he said what he thought, um, and he was very much a man of his convictions. And what I think is easy to forget about this period, because we think of it as a black and white, we think of the Nazi period as a black and white thing in history. I think one of the reasons we're attracted to it is you've got good and evil, and it's pretty clear. Well, in 1933, it wasn't so clear. In fact, um, many people who weren't necessarily pro-Nazi at least thought, well, we'll give him, him a, the benefit of the doubt and a chance to show what he can do. And Bonhoeffer was one of the few people who was resolutely against Hitler and the German Christians who wanted to emulate Hitler from the beginning. Very, very few people. And, and for instance, in the essay uh, on the church and the Jewish question in 1933, where he says um, in the middle of an argument that the church has an unconditional obligation to the victims of any state action, regardless of whether or not they're part of the church community. That sentence is so powerful precisely mm. because nobody else was saying that. Mm. Some people were saying, yes, we need to watch out for Jews who are also Christians and who are part of our community. But, but everybody was so, people in the church generally were so um, giddy about the, the Nazi revolution. They didn't want to be you know, asked to consider sort of the, what might go wrong or who might suffer. And Bonhoeffer was, was doggedly you know, focused on those things. And plenty of folks walked out on yeah. his lectures. That's right emptied the hall. Yeah. Uh, I think we have the mistaken notion that he was terribly popular. He was not. He was a powerful leader at the time. And as you say, he was not. He was marginalized. He was yeah. ignored. Yeah. So much so, right, that, uh, that uh, his death went unnoticed yeah. for too long of a period. Yeah. That, so now, now the atmosphere turns a little radioactive, and I'll see just by the expression on your face how comfortable you are going there. But I think we have similar questions in our own times. Yeah. And I do know, and of course, it doesn't take much of a reading of Bonhoeffer to, to know that 
uh, he would be appalled by any attempt to take him and bring him into our current circumstance right. and employ him, if you will, uh, to, to our own ends. Yeah. Uh, he was, you know, so careful about the unique situation each person finds himself herself in and needs to hear God in that moment of time. So we need to hear God and, and deal with our own big questions right now. But there are some similarities, it seems to me, yeah. between what occurred in uh, maybe post-Weimar yeah. Germany and leading up to uh, Adolf Hitler and... Uh, I think there are, and I, I think the similarities that Christians can really um, benefit from reflecting on are, are, is in what you call the German, referred to as the German church struggle, right? And how many Christians were, um, were, were supportive of Hitler because he, they saw him as um, favoring them in some way, as, as being uh, a, a, an avenue back to their cultural relevance. Uh, a, a, a ticket to traditional values, all these things. And the question is, not, it's not unique that politicians will offer that kind of thing. The question is, what are people willing to put up with to get those, those goods, those political goods? And if you look at Nazi Germany, it's increasingly clear in the 30s, as the 30s progress, that people are willing to put up with a lot. You know, the Aryan paragraph in April of 33, the Nuremberg Laws in 35. It's not like the Holocaust happened all at once. Let's just do an asterisk on the Aryan paragraph yeah. for lots of reasons. Yeah. One is most of our listeners probably won't be familiar with that. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we can detail that for a second and then explore it a little bit because it was a requirement placed not just on... Uh, the, the the general populace, the the, yeah. the uh, government workers, and so on, but the clergy of the day were were required to do something there. Let, let's well, they about. weren't required; they wanted to. Ah, that, that's you. what's so thank interesting yes, about it. Yes, of course. It. Thank you for that correction. Right. I of mean, course. The, the 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 issue in the German church struggle was whether the church would adopt the Aryan paragraph upon itself as a symbol of its participation in this and uh, the, the fascist revolution. But the Aryan paragraph is, uh, is the euphemism for uh, the law that was promulgated in April of 33 that's called the law for the restoration of the professional civil service. And basically it removed any non-Aryan, any Jew from any government position just with the stroke of a pen. And so already in April of 33, people had to ask themselves, what am I willing to put up with in terms of the violation of civil rights and, and rule of law in order to get what I think Hitler might, might give us. And so um, this was a, a real moment and, and Bonhoeffer is one of the only people who stands up and says, if we adopt the Aryan paragraph in the church, we have stopped being the church, yes. period, end of discussion. And you know, people who are that um, sort of uh, adamant and close-minded, you know, they're not, they're not fun to have around. They don't. They don't. Um, they don't get elected to be, you know, heads of, of you know, church councils and things like yeah. that. So he was definitely a um, somebody who uh, was a um, an irritant to a lot of folks, including. And and I think there is this kind of romantic notion that that the church was the conscience right. of. The nation, but in fact, was one of the first to capitulate. 
Yeah. In a way, I mean, I would argue that, that it was very early on that the church as a whole, in a, in a consensus in Germany, and we're talking about the, I mean, it's not exactly the same as what we call an evangelical here in America, but it was the Evangelische Kirche. It yeah. was the, the evangelical church of yeah. Germany. Certainly had the same roots in the Reformation that, that evangelicals in America sure. have and was one of the first subunits of German society right. to capitulate right. and fall in with Nazism. Yeah. The, the German term Gleichschaltung is, is um, very suggestive. It means basically synchronization, right, or alignment. And the church really wanted to not just not get in the way, they wanted to sort of synchronize with the Nazi state to be part of its, you know, inevitable success. Um, so people talk about the confessing church during the German church struggle as the good guys, and they were in a sense. This, these were the people who resisted the introduction of the Aryan paragraph and um, tended to not want to be as um, uncritically supportive of the state. But if you look at the confessing church, what Bonhoeffer found is that people um, wanted to be, you know, wanted to be thought of as patriots, wanted to be thought of as fully supportive of their leader. Um, but also have these caveats about what was going on in the church. And Bonifer just, it, it wasn't really possible. It was a situation where one had to declare. It's interesting that, you know, the Barman Declaration is the, is the document that um, is associated with the Confessing Church. And I'm a Presbyterian. It's part of our Book of Confessions. It's a constitutional document for my church. But if you re actually read the Barman Confession, and it's written in 1934, you'd think it might say something about Jews, since this was the issue really before them, and, and it doesn't. And Bart, who was the chief author, says later in his life, admits that the reason it doesn't is very simple, that if he had put something against about Jewish persecution in there, he wouldn't have gotten people to sign it, to agree to it. That is, members of the confessing church. Yeah. So it's tempting to romanticize and idealize the confessors as if they're the anti-Nazis, pro-Jewish forces, and it's much more complicated than that. And I guess that's really the lesson of studying Bonhoeffer in his times, yeah. is that there's nothing simplistic about it, that it's a very complex, very deep, very difficult subject, and one I think, and uh, I know uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you would agree that that he deserves attention now. In yeah, absolutely. Times. I think absolutely and, and difficult, but worth studying in part because um, it can illuminate so much about our about our own times and particularly about uh, a church that is, is, feels itself sort of, uh, you know, uh, threatened with losing some cultural significance. And what is it willing to do to get that back? And how how far is it willing to do go in, in courting the state and so forth? I, I think it's really it really rewards you know our attention. Well, thanks for helping us study him. You're welcome. And understand him, and I know uh, you're not the last word, but you're a very helpful word on that. So uh, thank you, Stephen Haynes, for the visit. Thanks for the commentary. Thanks for your work on Bonhoeffer and everything surrounding Bonhoeffer. Uh, go to Amazon or wherever you like to buy your books and uh, look for the titles we've mentioned and we'll have that up on the website too. So uh, thanks again. Thanks, Rob. Really appreciate uh, meeting you and being here. Well, likewise. Great.